Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Torsten Slock, and he is uh, the chief economist at Deutsche Bank Securities. But more importantly, he's someone I've been reading for I don't even know how many years. And I consistently find his research and his writing to be among the most interesting and useful and contextualizing economic data um, of pretty much anyone I've seen. He, he is, to me, the, the modern incarnation of Ed Hyman, uh, of ISI. He, he sees the world from a very holistic perspective. Uh, he looks at the, the, the world of markets and the economy uh, just from a very, very broad perspective. And I, I just find um, he's one of the few economists that I'll look at a chart and I'll look at what he writes and I kind of scratch my head and say, that's, that's fascinating. How did, how did I not see that before? How did I not understand this relationship between what otherwise is thought of as a small little piece, a little corner of the economy, and it turns out to be much more complicated, much more sophisticated, much more interesting. Uh, I think you'll find this a tour de force conversation, not only on the world of economics, but how economics intersects with markets, with stock investing, with bond investing, and how we should think about uh, what drives the economy and what drives the longer-term cycles that affect pretty much everything. So strap yourself in, get ready. My conversation with Torsten Slock. My special guest today is Torsten Slock. He is the chief economist at Deutsche Bank Securities, uh, where he has been toiling away since 2005. Uh, the Deutsche Bank team led by Mr. Slock has been top-ranked by institutional investor for both fixed income and equities for the past five years running. Previously, he worked at the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development in Paris, and, and before that he was at uh, the IMF. He is a member of the Economic Club of New York, uh, educated at both the University of Copenhagen and Princeton University. Torsten Slock, welcome to Bloomberg. Well, thanks for having me, Barry. So your background is really quite fascinating. You worked at the IMF. You worked at the OECD. What was it like transitioning to Wall Street? Well, that's a very important and very good question. And it was a bit of a culture shock coming from uh, the IMF and the OECD, where you have a lot of time to sit and think in a closed-door office about very complicated problems. And you need to write papers for committees. You need to write reports for uh, managers and for board meetings. And that process of really having a lot of time and a lot of uh, resources available to investigate something uh, was a, a real luxury view today in the sense that you had, in some cases, uh, several months to come up with an answer to why did we have a crisis, why did home prices go down in one country, why did the healthcare system not work in one country. So the short answer is that um, at the OECD and IMF, you really have time and energy and a lot of very smart colleagues that you can debate things with. And getting to uh, Wall Street, of course, was uh, a, quite a, a turnaround where you suddenly have clients asking 24-7 questions that you have to answer in a few sentences. So in that sense, um, it was it was quite a, a different. Uh, but in, in my view and in my personal opinion, uh, I find it incredibly stimulating that you had to use what you learned and what you were taught at the OECD and the IMF to come up with answers to incredibly difficult questions with a very few number of sentences. Very, very... So what I'm hearing from you is a very different sense of urgency and a emphasis on brevity. So a very busy 
fund manager, trader, fill in the blank, can digest the response quickly and then either add, subtract, or whatever, change their portfolio based on your take. Exactly. Because the whole problem is that, uh, and this is really important when you think about uh, how the financial service industry is organized, that uh, the sell side is really offering services. And uh, what uh, I do and we do in my group is that we offer the service of having a view on what the economy will do, what markets will do. And we also have uh, great colleagues uh, I have in Deutsche Bank who offer views on rates, FX, equities. And the bottom line of that is that uh, there's just a lot of competition for airspace for customers. So sure. clients get 300 emails every day. So if you, uh, in some cases, write long-winded explanations uh, that say there's a 50-50 chance that something might happen, uh, many customers <laughs> will just not uh, find that particularly helpful. So in some cases, we have to sharpen the pencil and come up with answers uh, that are particularly helpful for saying, what is it exactly that you're asking about? And it all boils down at the end of the tract. Here is the answer. Are we buying or are we selling? Which sometimes can be a frustrating process, but nevertheless, it turns out to be very important for getting your message across to clients in terms of helping them. And, and I get your research in my office, and I notice two specific things. Just about every day, you put out a specific chart, often not just here's the S&P 500, but typically it's a somewhat unusual aspect of the economy that also sheds a lot of light on what's going on. And I'm always fascinated how you find these really eclectic, oh, gee, I hadn't thought about that sort of thing. But they're very interesting, and they make you stop and think, hey, what is what is really going on at the 30,000-foot view level as opposed to kind of getting lost in the weeds and, and getting too specific and, and lacking the ability to show the context? But you also do the big context pieces, the big monthly and quarterly chart books. Tell us how you developed that approach. Yeah, no, that's a, a very important issue. I mean, to... It, in my view, to be successful, you need to you need to get people's attention not by saying I think the S and P five hundred will go to some extreme level, either high or low, uh, but rather to add some value to the thought process. Um, and how do you add value to the thought process? If I just send you a chart saying, "Oh, the unemployment rate is going down; it's four point one," you would say, "Okay, thank you very much. I already know that. So why should I open this email if I already know that the inflation core CPI is two point one and unemployment is four point one? So why should I care?" So um, some of the goal, and I'm very pleased to hear what you're saying, some of the goal of, with what I'm doing is that uh, it's supposed to be crazy. It's supposed to be a little bit wild and unusual because there's a lot of things going on that actually are very relevant. If I only sent you charts with inflation unemployment, you would say, okay, I already know those things. But there's so many other things going on that are incredibly difficult to quantify and incredibly difficult to assess that nevertheless actually play a role for whether markets are going up or down. So yes, we try to have a mix of both having things that are sort of punchy and informative and sort of factoids, if you will, and tell you in a few sentences, this went up. And you can then say, well, why did this go up? And you could say, this is obvious. I already knew that. Or you could say, I didn't know that. But that whole process of getting you stimulated and getting some value to how you think about your investment process in your firm uh, turns out to be quite important in terms of, uh, of the goal of what we're doing. And, and you're also an economist who sort of ventures into the world of equity and fixed income. A lot of economists, certainly fixed income is, is more common, but a lot of economists steer a bit clear. I could think of three, Rosenberg, Yardini, and Ed Hyman. But most of the economists whose work I see, they really want to talk about the economy and not necessarily the market. So, so what led you to focus to a large degree, on the intersection between markets and the economy. Well, that was a lot driven by understanding who your customer is. Uh, so certainly, we also have quote-unquote customers uh, from the Fed and the ECB and the IMF and OECD who read our research, and uh, all those, of course, have similar mindsets to when I sat down in uh, my chair in 2005. Uh, but if the customer has to translate 
whatever we're saying about the economy into something that's useful for are we buying stocks are we selling stocks are we buying rates or selling rates is the dollar going up or down is oil prices is any other commodity price going up or down i mean the input into that process i feel that you can't stop short of not giving investment advice as much as that's very interesting on its own because the problem is that the economy is just not only the driver of financial markets. There's so many other things going on that are relevant. And just because our PSD economics models, as interesting as they are, just because they are living their own life and have some limitations to what they can do and what you can talk about, that doesn't mean that that's the way that financial markets are functioning. There's so many things outside those PSD and Fed models that actually turns out to be quite important. So to your good question, I think it's very important to come up with additional value than just talk about Uh, real business cycle models or other complicated things. I mean, if I, it's no problem for me to tell you something that's really complicated, but the whole challenge for me really is to tell you something that's easy to understand where you still will say, wow, I actually find that useful and also find that quite interesting. I want to talk a little bit about the many factors that go into the equity markets, but I have to lead with something you wrote, um, I think it was late last year, 30 market risks for 2018. Let's discuss that. Yeah, so uh, we try uh, at the beginning of every year to uh, think hard about uh, what are the risks, uh, both to the economy, but the risks more broadly that market participants should be worrying about. And uh, we have been uh, making a list uh, for the last few years, and um, this year it actually grew to 30 because we thought that there were so many things going on that if we (laughs) missed something out, it would be a shame. Uh, But it's clear that um, those risks can be categorized into different buckets. One risk, of course, which is the traditional risk, I'll call it the organic risk is economic risks, which have to do with where are we in the business cycle? Is there a higher risk of overheating? Is there a higher risk of a recession? Uh, what sectors of the economy are out of balance? Uh, is consumption out of balance? Is CapEx out of balance? Are financial markets out of balance? Is the banking sector is the case that you have the housing market out of balance? So the, many of the risks we had on our list, we're really focusing first of all on sort of the traditional old school macroeconomic risks in terms of where are we in the cycle? What's next? over the coming quarters? Is it overheating? Is it recession? And the short answer to that first bucket was that we worry still today a lot more about overheating and inflation than we worry about recession. So those risks, of course, are still slowly playing out. The second part of the list... Wait, well, let me let me stop you right there before yep. we get to the second part. Yep. So this is now five months, four months later. We see the Fed is saying... Um, Rates are going to continue to tick up, that we have a variety of uh, indications that if we're not at full employment, we're certainly very, very close with unemployment at you know 4%. We may even see a three-handle sometime coming soon. Exactly. And yet inflation, while there's signs of inflation and signs of, signs of some wage pressure, it's slight, and we haven't seen inflation tick up like you might imagine – would happen in a full employment on the verge of overheating economy. How, how do you explain that, and what, what does that do to the risk for 2018 of an overheating economy? Absolutely. This has been one of the big mysteries of this expansion, that we have still not quite seen the inflationary upward pressure that we've been waiting for for so long. Mm-hmm. So the Fed has been crying wolf. Uh, inflation is about to go up. Rates are about to go up. In the market pricing in Fed fund futures, and also for that matter, what the street expectations have been to long rates, have also been crying wolf and say rates are going, rates are going up. But rates didn't go up for the last uh, four or five years as expected. So you could certainly ask the question, why should we expect that to be now? Why are we still saying that this is a risk? Mm-hmm. Uh, what makes today different from a few years ago are the following things. Namely, first of all, today the issue is that the unemployment rate is now so low relative to where it was a few years ago. So that's suggesting that we have an economy that's close to overheating relative to the Congressional Budget Office. We are at uh, close to full capacity by some metrics. We're actually a little bit above full capacity. So that's number one reason what's different today relative to a few years ago. The second reason why also we see upward pressure on inflation is that the dollar is actually going down now. I remember when the dollar 
goes down, you see inflation goes up. Mm-hmm. So that's also a second reason Commodity why... Commodity prices certainly Absolutely, rise that's also adding to what's happening with the upward pressure on inflation. The third reason why we still think that we will have inflation in 2018 and coming potentially already in the next few months is that we just did an enormous fiscal expansion. Sure. And the fiscal expansion was also not something that we did a few years ago. That should also be putting some upward pressure. And the fourth and final argument now, why now is different and why we think the wolf will finally come, is that we do believe that all the discussion about trade war and tariffs will also be having some more modest upward pressure on prices. So if I add these things together of we had full capacity, the dollar is going down, we did a fiscal expansion, the trade war and tariffs talk is also lifting prices modestly. We do think that by the end of this year, inflation, and here we're talking about core PCE, will be well above the Fed's 2% target. Because the Fed has a 2% target and we've been below for the last five years. So many people you meet in rates say, we'll be below the target for so long. Why should we overshoot where the risks are now that we could be getting very close to that inflation data we just got from core CPI which is a different inflation indicator was 2.1 but the bottom line is that the trend is not your friend when you look at what's happening on inflation so we do get worried about the Fed actually raising rates as many times as they're saying and potentially also resulting in a steepening of the yield curve later this year which would which would quiet down all the people who are saying the flattening is causing recession but let's hold that and come back to it I want to push back on inflation not because I necessarily agree with this, but here's the here's the counter-argument, and I want to hear your response. So, three pieces. A, we have full employment, but compare the current full employment to 20 years ago, and a lot of people who lost good, high-paying, or middle-class jobs have re- been replaced with mediocre, low-paying jobs in the hospitality industry, food and beverage service, the low end of health care. So while we have full employment, the wage picture has skewed dramatically across most of the middle class. That That's bullet point one. And then two and three is you still have technology driving the price down of everything. You have automation making things faster, cheaper, better. Um, and lastly, even with a trade war, globalization continues to drive prices down and drive labor costs down as we have a global labor arbitrage. Yep. H- how do you respond? And by the way, it's just off the top of my head. I'm sure a, a, a real economist, unlike myself, who's a um, faux economist, uh, could give you even more. But how how credible is the counter arguments to inflation? Well, the first observation is that the Fed is saying that they want to hike rates three times this year and four times next year you got to think really hard about what is their thought process. Why are they saying that rates need to go up so much? If they were worried that uh, all these forces from globalization or Amazon or other things could be holding inflation down more permanently, then they wouldn't have this firm view among these incredibly smart people on the FOMC that rates need to go up so much over the next few years. I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind to your very good points is that remember what the CPI is? CPI inflation, the weight in the CPI to goods is about a third. Mm -hmm. and the weight in the CPI to services is about two-thirds. So what's really critical about that is that it's true that China is holding U.S. inflation down. It's true that Amazon is holding U.S. inflation down very modestly. But it's also true that Mexico and other countries are having competitive pressure holding inflation down in the U.S. But goods only make up a third. In other words, tradable goods only make up a third of the index. Whereas non-tradable stuff in the index, meaning services, makes up two-thirds. And what is services? That is, first of all, housing. And housing is not under downward competitive pressure globally. Housing makes up 40% of the CPI overall, a core CPI. So that means that it actually is a very important part of wow, our consumption. Healthcare makes up about 20% of the mm-hmm. CPI. So that's also not something healthcare costs also at the moment are now going up. So also is not under globalization pressures or Amazon pressures as such. And finally, education costs also make up a significant share of CPI. So the complaint that you often hear among hedge funds and others that, oh, well, prices will never go up except on healthcare, education, and on housing. Well, wait a minute, but those components make up two-thirds of the CPI. So I think the reason why, if you look at the actual inflation rates for services, have been around 2.5-3% now, almost for the last decade, whereas inflation for goods has indeed been negative. So a very important part of the arguments you, you just listed and a very critical part of the discussion with customers about whether we'll ever see inflation is that the weight to goods only being a 
third, think about how much of your money you actually spent going to strip malls and going to Amazon and going elsewhere and shopping. The share you spend on goods is actually relatively small compared to how much you spend on your mortgage or your rent, how much you spend on healthcare, so how what, much you spend on education. So what I'm hearing from you is deflation in the things we want and inflation in the things we need. That's a good way to put it. Uh, let's jump into the rest of your 30 market risks for 2018. We talked about the economic risks before. What are some of the non-economic risks that you're considering um, for for this year to the market? Well, they basically fall in a very big bucket, which is called political risk or geopolitical risks. Uh, this includes everything that we are talking about in markets and have been talking about for a while, from what is happening in U.S. politics, what's happening in European politics. More recently, we also discussed quite intensively what's happening in Japanese politics. We have also been debating for quite some time what's happening, of course, with North Korea. More recently, we started debating again the Syria situation. All those risks are incredibly difficult to quantify, but nevertheless turn out to be pretty important for how markets are moving. So the the problem is that nobody really has a great toolbox for political risks. We have a great toolbox, we have a great light post, to give us a lot of light under the economics problems. Therefore, we spend enormous amounts of time trying to look at the individual economic indicators. But at the end of the day, suddenly something very unquantifiable comes in, political risk from just left field, and we just didn't expect it. And suddenly we need to have a view on, is this good news? Is it bad news? How big is this story? Is it a big story? Is it a small story? What can I quantify? Just like more recently, we got the trade war stuff has come into the radar screen. Is that a big deal? Is that not a big deal? We have discussions with equity investors who think that's a big deal. Rates investors think this is not a big deal because the macro implications are relatively limited. So the whole non-economic list of risks that we have is just uh, has the distinguished features that we just don't really have a good understanding and good way of really assessing this, which actually in some cases makes it very exciting to discuss. So I, I completely agree with you. It's fascinating to discuss. But I always find myself pushing back on the, here are the political risks from the market. And I want to throw a couple ideas at you uh, and get your, your thoughts on it. So 2017 was, by most measures, the most politically volatile year, certainly in recent memory, certainly in my memory. Um, I, don't, I, I didn't live through the 30s. I didn't live through World War II, so I can't tell you what the politics were like then. But... <laughs> 2017 it was just a relent it was like the campaign never ended and it just got louder and more volatile and yet at the same time the market volatility was the lowest we've seen in like 30 years it was just a slow modest grind up every day and at the end of the year the S&P 500 had gained um all in 22% including dividends that's a huge huge contradiction to how we should contextualize politics and and markets. So so if you could explain that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're right to say that there were many predictions ahead of uh, many elections, including the U.S. election, that things would have gone completely different than what actually happened. It just tells you how difficult it is in some cases to get some good quantification and assessment of what's actually going to happen. Mm -hmm. I think what's very important to keep in mind is that from the economics broader textbook, there are the politicians who really are accountable for what, generally speaking, can be called fiscal policy and structural policy. And then there is the central bank, in this case the Fed, which is basically only responsible for basically one thing, namely interest rates and monetary policy, but really keeping interest rates at a level that they think is relevant for where the economy is. And what I think is a very important backdrop also to what happened in 2017 is that monetary policy has for many, many years been very, very easy. So in some sense, what's driving markets, it might not be fiscal policy or structural policy or just what politicians are doing. It could be that the dominating force for many, many years has actually been the Fed and the ECB and the BOJ. And maybe that was the reason why stock markets did so well for so long, since 2009, essentially. Equities have done incredibly well, simply because the amount of support that has been coming, not only from the Fed, also from the ECB, BOJ, SNB, even PBOC in China, we have seen significant money printing that needed to find a home outside of fixed income in many cases, and outside of fixed income basically in most cases means equities. And equities probably also benefited, and this was the intention 
from the significant amount of money printing. So even maybe even the, in 2017, when the Fed was tightening and quantitative easing was ending, and their balance sheet was I don't want to say it was getting it was shrinking, but it was certainly not expanding the way it had been. But the in global years. central bank, that's true, Barry. You're right to say that the Fed it absolutely was pulling in liquidity. But if you look at the global central bank balance sheet, the ECB was still popularly speaking yes. printing money. The BOJ was still printing money. Also, what happened again in China was also supporting the economy. So let me ask you on that point, and I apologize for interrupting, but this cycle globally seemed to be very much with the major economic centers very much out of step, out of sync with each other. Normally it's a global, everybody cuts rates together, everybody races, but it seemed like the U.S. did what they did and then Japan did Abenomics and Europe eventually said, hey, these guys seem to be onto something. Absolutely. And they started. How unusual is that? And what does this mean for the... Uh, economy and the markets going forward. Well, what's really unusual about this cycle, exactly to the way you just outlined it and sequenced it, is that remember that the central banks are now buying assets specifically. Of course, the ECB and the BOJ are still buying assets, and the Fed did this for many years. They're buying uh, basically government bonds. Uh, I used to work at the IMF where we would fly to countries and say, don't buy your own government bonds. That's crazy. You're monetizing your own debt, and the market will not think that you're credible if you do it as a central mm -hmm. bank. And now the Fed has been buying their own government bonds. The ECB has been buying their own government bonds. The BOJ has been buying their own government bonds. And now we all sit here and say, oh yeah, now it's fine. They can get away <laughs> with it. So... The issue is that it really is true that markets are distorted by the very significant amount of asset purchases or QE that has been carried out by the three major central banks. And therefore, the exit, which is what we're beginning slowly to go through with the Fed raising rates next year, the ECB will raise rates and eventually the BOJ will also raise rates. The exit will be associated with some unwinding of those distortions. So a lot of my client discussions are exactly about what you just said, namely what kind of distortions were created and that sequencing that we saw, what would the end game be as we get back to, quote unquote, a more normal situation? And is it possible to get back to a more normal situation where asset prices are not heavily distorted by central bank uh, asset purchases or QE? So you mentioned ECB and the Fed over in Japan, their central bank are actually buying equities. We don't we don't see that in the US and I don't believe we see a lot of it in, in Europe. Absolutely. What is the central bank of Japan doing and what is the impact on on Japanese markets is Abenomics working or is it just one giant distortion and we can't tell? Yeah, so Abenomics has three arrows, namely monetary policy, fiscal policy, and then structural policies, which is an attempt to say, let's make the economy more competitive. Let's make it easier to fire in Japan. Let's make it easier to hire. Let's get more women into the labor force. Let's try to get the economy more flexible and dynamic. And the answer is that on the fiscal side, the debt level is just enormous. Monetary policy has now tried many different things and that hasn't really created a significant amount of success stories, unfortunately, despite that we're now almost uh, 20 years uh, plus and counting. And that's like 200% to GDP, something with, something immense which, like that? Uh, this is the debt to GDP level, exactly, yeah. which makes them very vulnerable to high interest rates. So uh, the answer today to your question is that it just hasn't really worked quite yet. And of course, it opens up a lot of questions. Is the US also going down the road of being Japan eventually? Uh, we don't think so at all, because the problem in Japan is that the, the economy is just not dynamic enough and there are just some very ingrained reasons why it's been very difficult to create inflation whereas as we spoke about earlier we are already seeing some signs of inflation in the US in the CPI and PCE it's only very small upward moves but uh, as I mentioned the list of reasons why we think that now is a bit different and also the labor market is more dynamic in the US which is why the employment cost index is trading higher we've seen median weekly earnings trending higher we've seen even unit labor costs have also started to move up a bit so I get it that average hourly earnings hasn't really moved up as much, at least more recently. But at the end of the day, we do think that we will get more wage pressure and we will get, therefore, get a different situation in the U.S. with higher rates, which is why the Fed is hiking, and also a different um, level of interest rates compared to what Japan has been going when, through. When you discuss the structural issues in Japan, are you referring to the Karitsu? Are you referring to their post office essentially being their retirement accounts? What? How? How is Japan 
so different than the U.S. Uh, we know it's very different. Yeah. So, but the, what do you mean structural? One, one extremely important difference is demographics. That the Japanese population is aging, and therefore you actually have a shrinking labor force. Whereas in the U.S., we actually still have a growing labor force. It may grow a little bit less quickly than it did earlier, but we still have a significant amount of immigration. We have still population growth in the U.S. So one very important structural, very in very simple terms, structural difference is that the amount of taxpayers in Japan is falling, mm-hmm. whereas in the U.S., the amount of taxpayers is still growing because we're adding in the labor force more people that pay taxes, that can help for the aging population, help for paying for uh, retirement uh, payments and transfers to older generations and Medicare and Medicaid, whereas you don't really have that in Japan, which is really weighing both on the government finances, but also weighing on the economy more broadly. You know, I want to talk a little bit about your career because your path is somewhat, um, I don't want to say unusual, uh, because lots of people go from government institutions and banks to Wall Street, but yours meandered through Europe, through Paris, to New York. Tell us, uh, right out of, of graduate school, that was Princeton, correct? Uh, yeah, so I did get my PhD from Copenhagen, but I did spend a year in Princeton where I got the Americanized and uh, opened up my eyes for uh, what this wonderful country can do. So so where? tell us about the, the career path. Did you go from Copenhagen to the OECD? Yeah, no. So first, um, I did my PhD in Copenhagen. And uh, as part of the program in most European countries, they ask you to go to a U.S. university. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's just say the way it is that the quality of the PhD programs in several European countries, if not most, uh, is nowhere near what you can get in the U.S. So that's uh-huh. why they encourage people to say, go and take a year somewhere. And the government said, we'll pay the tuition, we'll pay your room and board. Why don't you go this? And I'm sorry. Do this? I'm sorry. Uh, your tuition and room and board was paid at by, graduate level. Absolutely, was paid by. Education is free in uh, actually all Nordic countries. Uh, but uh, what else is free in Nordic countries? Healthcare is also free. Taxes, are, of course, are higher. But uh, how much we, higher? Uh, so average tax rates are roughly around uh, 57 percent. It's not that much so higher. So it's about. 10, 15 percentage points higher than here. Right. But, uh, you do get free healthcare, free education, which I was so lucky to benefit from, which brought me, therefore, in my one year to New Jersey, to Princeton, uh-huh. uh, where I got to work with uh, various professors. I worked with Michael Bodo, who was visiting there at the time. Barry Eichengreen was actually also sure. visiting there. I was a resource assistant for them. And they basically said, uh, you should go and try and get an internship at the IMF. And I said, okay, uh, that could be fun. And I did an internship at the IMF the following summer, and I figure out quickly that internships in this country is about figuring out if you want to do that job more permanently, if they want to keep you. And mm-hmm. I was so lucky that they offered me a job. So in 1998, I started in the economies program, the PSP program at the, at the IMF. And it, it, by the way, if memory serves, Princeton's economics department was a powerhouse. Well, at the you, time, uh, Bernanke, Bernanke, Krugman, was chair of the department, and uh, yeah, and you also had uh, Ken Rogoff was also there at the time, and I didn't interact with them uh, all the time, but I mean they were there, and as you know, uh, professors uh, want to talk to PhD students, uh, which I was so incredibly lucky that they also wanted to talk to me. So uh, yeah, that's true. It was a really interesting ground for just getting. Uh, again, an academic uh, overview of uh, what's going on in different areas and specializing in the in the areas that I uh, wrote about. Uh, so the IMF to OECD, was that the next step? Yeah. Uh, I did spend a, a year at the Bank of America here in New York. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but after that, uh, then I did go to the OECD in Paris. And at the OECD in Paris, some of my former managers from... Uh, the IMF had moved to Deutsche Bank uh, and uh, specifically David Fogerslander who I still have the pleasure of working with today uh, and my great colleague Binky Chata uh, asked if I wanted to come to work for Deutsche Bank in New York and in 2005 I said yes to that and I've been sitting in that chair uh, for the last uh, 12, 13 years and counting and enjoying every moment of it. So that's pretty fascinating. So you're now on Wall Street for a dozen years. How different is it today than it was when you joined right in the middle of the credit and housing boom? Well, I think one very important difference is that um, in 2005 and 2006, obviously, uh, there was much fewer worries about uh, all the things uh, that actually turned out to be really important. Uh, We have gotten much more humble, first of all, in terms of our forecasting ability, but also in terms of what is it actually that we need to look at, which also gets back to why do I have my little business model today of just sending a chart and a few sentences? Well, some of the 
idea is that I cannot just only look at a certain small set of indicators because if I do that, I risk that I'm missing something that actually could turn out to be extremely important. So uh, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back here is not only necessarily inflation unemployment, but could be something coming out of the blue that I had just not appreciated enough. So inflation risks can come from different sources, but most importantly, recession risks can now come from a whole range of different sources. So I would say that over the last uh, at least decade, a very important change in the way um, that the economics profession on the street is working is that you got to open your eyes more to risks that are out there and asking constantly, are these risks important? How are these risks playing out? Is this something I should be spending more time on? So so let's delve in that into that a little bit. What do you think, I'm going to ask this question in a little bit of a skewed way, what do you think are potential risks that much of either the investor class or the economist class might be overlooking? Well, I think that the, the sort of the number one organic risk that we spoke about earlier is that there's some upside risk to inflation. Uh, you can then say we economics profession and also the Fed have been crying wolf all these years and inflation, why should it come now? So maybe there's some uncertainty about that risk. But there are two also other risks that I think are very important. First of all, the fiscal expansion requires a lot of net issuance of treasuries. Mm -hmm. And if you expand the amount of safe assets in the world, if you expand the amount of treasuries that are outstanding, you are basically beginning to compete with the risk-free asset with more risky assets. This is ex exactly what we're seeing in some sense with the T-bill issuance that's competing with LIPO, that's competing with commercial paper, probably even competing with IG, that if you suddenly offer to investors a lot more risk-free assets, meaning assets that have basically no risk associated with them, in this case, U.S. Treasuries, then investors will, of course, say, I would rather have a risk-free asset rather than have a risky asset with a credit risk that has a mm -hmm. worse credit rating. So the more that the amount of risk-free assets is expanded, the higher is the risk that investors will start to pick risk-free assets relative to risky assets. It may sound very abstract, but what it means in very practical terms is that if the U.S. government needs to essentially double the issuance of treasuries over the next 18 months, which is what is in the pipeline from 2017 to 2019, the risks associated with that for risky assets, meaning IG, high-yield loans, CLOs, even mortgages, the risks for those fixed-income assets begin to increase simply because there will be a crowding out of other spread product fixed income assets relative to what's happening in treasuries. There has been a line of thought that's existed for a while that suggests there's been a shortage of high-quality sovereign debt over the past 10 or 20 years. Correct. Isn't this new set of issuance kind of getting back to a, a more normal supply? And that seems to be a theme, normalizing rates, normalizing inflation, and normalizing sovereign treasury uh, supply. Absolutely. Uh, but think about it. Let's say that uh, you and I were a pension fund or an insurance company, and we have been begging for high interest rates for many, many years. Now, high interest rates suddenly begin to appear because 10-year treasury rates have moved up modestly. The mm. consensus, if you look at your Bloomberg screen, you'll see the consensus expected to move through three later this year. All this suggests that if the risk-free asset suddenly gives a higher return, then the question becomes, well, how does that crowd out the willingness to invest in investment-grade credit and other risky assets? And therefore, the risk is, in my view, that yes, it's true that we need to see some normalization, but in 2007, in round numbers, total U.S. government debt was around $9 trillion. And we are going towards that the total amount of government debt outstanding will be $21 trillion, meaning we have expanded dramatically over the last decade the amount of treasuries outstanding. And that's beginning again to compete. And this is where you really will test the market. This is really IMF, page one. Is there enough demand for U.S. treasuries? Will we get into some, uh, so of course this is a bit extreme, but we'll get into some situation like Venezuela or Zimbabwe or other emerging markets where you suddenly have problems financing your government finances. Obviously the U.S. will nowhere near any of the problems that many emerging markets have, but you really are beginning to ask EM-style questions to the U.S., namely what happens to countries that expand the fiscal uh, situation as much as the U.S. has been doing. What happens to the credit rating? What happens to the exchange rate? Will the dollar go down more? What happens to interest rates? And what happens, for that matter, politically, when you have a situation where you certainly need to have such an incredible increase in financing needs? And if you have a recession, of course, the financing needs will go up because then we also need to pay more on unemployment benefits, etc. Sure. So, so the short answer to your question is that 
yeah, it's true that you want to see some normalization in uh, treasury issuance and for that matter in treasury yields. But uh, that normalization is now coming at the same time while we're doing a big expansion, which I think is at a very significant risk to financial markets over the coming quarters. So earlier you referenced um, possibility of a trade war. Let's let's discuss these tariffs and and that issue. Lots of folks have looked at these new tariffs on steel and aluminum and uh, the arguments back and forth with China, uh, almost as if it's a big surprise. But come on, let's be honest. Then-candidate Trump campaigned on protectionism. His whole slogan, Make America First, every whistle stop was, we're going to erect tariffs and we're going to get rid of NAFTA and we're going to throw out all of these trade agreements um, can we really say we're surprised? And we know this process takes like a year to implement. Can we really say the markets are surprised by a president who campaigned on this, talked about it consistently, still talks about it constantly, actually did what he said he was going to do? I completely agree with what you're saying. It's not a surprise in the sense that globalization has been benefiting tremendously people in China and Mexico and emerging markets because they benefited tremendously from a more open U.S. economy and a more global open trading system. You also saw tremendous benefits to consumers and us living in the U.S. who buy goods and people in Europe who buy goods and you saw cheaper goods than what you had ever seen before on so many different fronts, basically anywhere in anything that you bought in the good spectrum. But what we also need to recognize, and this is, of course, what's very important part of this, is that there were certainly some people in West Virginia and in Pennsylvania and Ohio who basically lost out because they didn't produce these goods anymore. They didn't produce steel anymore. And this is what this political process uh, is, is now telling us and what we're going through, how do you put up on the scale the benefits that you might have had from cheaper goods and someone in China who got a job because they had to produce goods for us buying stuff relative to the unfortunate situation that many people in the US and in Europe lost their jobs because of open trade and because of globalization. So it's in some sense... Not a surprise that we've gotten to where we are. Uh, and that's, of course, the main problem that the politicians are struggling with. How do we compensate those who lost out in the name of globalization in Europe and in the U.S.? And how do we make sure that they don't fall through now that we have gotten to a point where it looks like it's point of no return, but politicians are doing everything they can, not only in the U.S., but also in Europe, to try to find some solutions to um, making sure that uh, those who lost out in the global trading system that was so open and benefiting so much in cheaper goods, uh, that, that, um, that was hurting them so much. I recently had a conversation with someone who started their career in the 1970s, and I had to ask them, how did that period scar them in terms of uh, inflation and you know low returns in the stock market and spiking interest rates? So you started your career, at least on Wall Street, right in the midst of what would later turn out to be a credit bubble and a housing collapse. How has that colored your view of the world or, or has it not? Yeah, I would say that going through now, having spent most of my time uh, on the street in, in a period of crisis or basically a period of trying to figure out what was wrong with the economics textbook, what was wrong with the financial system, what was wrong with the way that we analyze things, and why didn't, why couldn't we predict this better? Um, I, we did uh, in Deutsche Bank have uh, a number of warning pieces out uh, ahead of the crisis, uh, but the reality is that there was really nobody anywhere who predicted uh, this crisis would be coming, in particular not the, the force and the magnitude of what actually happened. So a lot of the way that we think about things and a lot of the agenda for uh, how we think about things and how we try to help clients think about what's going on is very much colored by the fact that they, there cannot be a stone unturned. We have to make sure that we lift every area that we cover, every base, so we are actually absolutely sure that there's nothing in terms of risks that we are missing out on overall. That has also created, I mean, let's just say the way it is in markets, a much more stressed situation also on the buy side because people are now seeing crisis everywhere. Right. Uh, constantly someone is saying, oh my God, there's something happening over here and we got to make sure that this is not um, turning everything down and creating a next recession. The, so the, old, the old expression is every general fights the last war. 
And that's so true. And I don't know how many times over the last uh, 10 years, uh, essentially since 2009, when we left the recession, I have not received emails from clients saying, oh, the next recession is just around the corner. And it wasn't. And now we're sitting here, well, maybe you shouldn't. And this is a really important investment implications of, in my view, of how you should think about things today is that the risks of overheating today are much higher than the risk of recession, most importantly because of the significant tailwind from the fiscal expansion. So yes, we're still watching. And to your question, we're still watching a lot of different risks. And I think we need as investors to constantly monitor everything that's going on. But that's just also created a much more confusing environment where we just, in some cases, just don't have whatsoever any toolbox for understanding that type of risk. We have been speaking with Torsten Slock. He is the chief international economist for Deutsche Bank Securities. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out the podcast extras, where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things economic wonkery. You can find those wherever finer podcasts are sold, iTunes, Bloomberg.com, or Overcast. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. Be sure and check out my daily column on Bloomberg.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the podcast. Torsten, thank you so much for doing this. I've been, I've been looking forward to having this conversation. Well, thanks for having me. I, I mentioned I'm a fan of your research. I have to figure out a way with the new MIFID rules. I'm only getting some of it now. I have to figure out a way to uh, get back on the full, um, the full plan. We'll, we'll talk about that afterwards. I have so many questions, but I only have so much time. Um, so let me, let me choose the ones that I think... Uh, are really worthwhile. Um, tell us about your favorite economic indicator. What do you think is most important? And then I'll ask you what's most underrated and what's what what's most overrated. So I think uh, the ISM has historically proven to be the highest correlation with GDP. So I would say that from, uh, despite that it's only every month, it's a long time to go and wait for another economic indicator. That's definitely at the top of the list. Uh, of course, non-farm payrolls and how many jobs we're creating and what the unemployment rate is doing uh, is a close second in terms of uh, the employment report just has a wealth of information about what's going on in the economy, what sectors are doing better, what sectors are doing worse. So not the headline numbers, but what's beneath the headline? I think there's more value. So the headline has some value, but I think it has more value underneath in terms of informing you about where is the U.S. economy going. Mm -hmm. um, and a third and final indicator, of course, is the thing that we worry most about at the moment, namely various indicators of inflation, specifically core PCE, which is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, because that tells you are the indicators we spoke about first, namely ISM, unemployment, are they overheating? Do we need more stimulus? Where are we in the business cycle? And informing you about where you are in the cycle turns out to be quite important. So from a pure macro perspective, those would be the three areas and the three indicators that uh, we look most at. What, what do you think is an indicator that people rely on too much and is probably overrated? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, there's a number of things that people pay a lot of attention to. Uh, I mean, uh, one area uh, where, uh, at least uh, generally speaking, where people pay maybe too much attention is jobless claims. Uh, some indicators like jobless claims are really derived of how many people show up, which is what jobless claims measures. New jobless claims is how many people show up at the unemployment office this week uh, and ask for claims for the first time. Uh, as, is that, as, is that affected by weather? Is that affected by holidays? Many what, things what that drives into that? that. But uh, I mean, the general trend in that is generally helpful. But um, uh, I still think that uh, it, it, it does get a good deal of attention, mainly because it's high frequency. But I still think that uh, it doesn't have anywhere near the amount of uh, wealth of information that you get 
in the employment report. So I'm willing to wait for another month to see where the economy is. Maybe it's just my uh, long-term patience as an economist relative to someone who is managing money. So, so let's talk about equities a little bit. Um, you mentioned uh, you, you look at the world as uh, a continuous cycle. Where are we in the market cycle? Yeah, so it's clear that, um, first of all, the business cycle is indeed getting old. Uh, the problem with that argument is that uh, the business cycle doesn't run on a clock. It's not the case that after six years uh, or ten years, then the business cycle starts to die out. For the business cycle to slow down, you need some imbalance to roll over. And the normal three imbalances that starts recessions and starts the business cycle to slow down and therefore starts to have a big impact on equities is either because we have too much consumption or because we have too much capex, meaning imbalances in consumption, imbalances in capex, or imbalances in financial markets. And if you look at consumption at the moment, we don't really have much imbalance. In, on the contrary, we really don't understand why consumption is still on the more weak side. Likewise, with capex and business fixed investment, meaning private investment for companies, we don't really have imbalances there either. And finally, for financial markets, the big question, uh, which is essentially what you're asking about, is do we have imbalances in equities? Do we have imbalances in rates? Do we have imbalances in credit? Or do we have imbalances in FX? Generally speaking, I think the answer to that is no. And I think that the fact that we've got a huge fiscal tailwind more recently suggests that we should see solid GDP growth for the rest of this year. We should see solid consumption growth for the rest of this year. We should see solid CapEx growth because CapEx also got incentivized by the design of the fiscal package to also grow continuously. So the answer to your question is that um, we still think equities will do well. We still think rates will slowly go higher. The Fed will gradually hike rates. We think uh, because of all these problems we spoke about earlier with trade, because of some of the issues generally on the relative value of, F of assets in the U.S., we do think the dollar will go down. But uh, generally speaking, uh, equities should continue to do well. Uh, the P.E. ratio got some adjustment more recently to the downside. So there's definitely still more room for equities to rise from here, mainly because the economy is not about to enter a recession. If anything, the risks are that, again, the economy is about to overheat. So I heard uh, trade wars are a good thing and they're easy to win. I don't recall where I read that, but I read that somewhere recently. How, how true is that? And, and what is a trade war with China or a possible trade war with China? What, what might that mean? Well, the, the risk from a market perspective is really interesting because a trade war is putting on essentially higher prices on either things that you import or higher prices on things that you export if, the, in this case, the Chinese retaliate. But think about what that means. That means, first of all, that if prices of things that you import start to go up and if you don't know where they're going, then what does the whole question become for corporates is, well... What does the playing field look like in the future? What are the prices of my inputs? What are the prices of the products I'm selling? What kind of inputs can I buy and can I substitute for things that might have gone up because of tariffs coming in? So the uncertainty associated with we don't know which kinds of tariffs are coming next. And even if we do know the list of tariffs that already are coming, we don't know what the retaliation will be. And all that is probably for companies, meaning that they are holding back with a little bit with hiring, holding back a little bit with investment as a result of uncertainty. What does the playing field look like for me as I plan ahead as a corporate? So the downside to uh, trade wars really is that equities and particular equity names when it comes to airplanes, cars, uh, soybeans, you suddenly have very specific names in uh, equities that uh, benefit and some who doesn't benefit. So from an equity perspective, it makes sense that equities go down when trade wars come in. But what's also important about that is that remember that the size of tariffs is about 50 billion and total imports in the U.S. is about 2.2 trillion. So the total magnitude of tariffs is actually relatively small from a mm -hmm. macro perspective. So that's probably why rates haven't moved. That's probably also why, in some sense, the dollar hasn't moved as much, simply because rates really don't move much because it's only the macroeconomic conditions that would have to change for rates to move. So it makes sense, in my view, in summary, that equities are not liking trade wars, whereas you're not really seeing much movement on the rates front, meaning interest rates really haven't moved much because the macro impact of tariffs is probably going to be relatively small. And you mentioned earlier that P.E. ratios are coming down, which makes me ask, we're at pretty much record high corporate profits. Is that sustainable? Why are profits so high? How much of it should be credited to really low borrowing costs? 
what do you see the future of corporate profits uh, looking like over the next couple of quarters? Yeah, uh, companies have become extremely efficient in so many ways uh, since the financial crisis, uh, and we have seen significant amounts of cost-cutting, which has been a very important part of why they have become so efficient. So across sectors in the S&P 500, increased efficiency in the form of cost-cutting, basically making things more lean and mean and generally more competitive, both domestically in the U.S., but also globally, have certainly benefited corporate America tremendously. So a very important first answer to your question is that costs have come down and companies have become more efficient. So looking ahead, of course, now with the tailwind of the Trump tax cut that we got in December for corporates, that's going to boost earnings even more. So uh-huh. if we from the... We, G- in fact, we just saw that in, in a lot of the early earnings that have been released over and the past few weeks. Makes complete sense. B- big surprise. Like, uh, I wasn't expecting a, a upside surprise for Bank of America or there's a hand. The financials seem to be doing well. A number of other companies seem to... Um, be doing much better than expected, and a lot of that goes to the uh, the new lower corporate rates. Absolutely, Barry, because we just lowered the corporate rates to 21% from uh, 35 uh, at a high level that we just had been struggling with for many years. So in that sense, we've gotten to a situation where corporates are both benefiting from being incredibly efficient and lean and mm-hmm. now also getting a huge tailwind from higher profits. And on top of that, of course, repatriation and incentivizing them to invest. So the key conclusion is uh, earnings growth should continue to be strong, at least for the rest of this year. Wow, that that's quite a statement. All right, let me jump to my favorite questions. Uh, these are what we ask all of our guests. And... Um, it, it creates a sort of interesting frame of reference when we look across uh, a variety of different uh, people. So what's the most important thing that most people don't know about you? Um, well, one uh, very important secret to what I do is that we have a team in India that actually produces all the charts and all the work that I do. Uh, so no from kidding. a business perspective, uh, this has been extremely efficient and extremely helpful. Uh, when I go to bed every evening, I think about what should the chart be, what should I write about uh, tomorrow. I send an email to the team in India. And when I wake up, and look at my phone and I see the chart right there. In most cases, it looks perfect. In some cases, I need to work a little bit more. But when I get to the office, it's literally right there uh, ready to send out. And uh, that's at least from a business perspective, something uh, that has been incredibly helpful in, and very efficient that they work in a different time. Time zone are these are these things done? Are these economists, data analysts, they, or chart people, or everything? Five people on our team, and they have a master's degree in economics. Uh, we even have people that have a PhD in economics mm-hmm. from the Daily School of Economics, and they are incredibly helpful. So, if they're listening here, thank you very much, guys. It's uh, hugely appreciated what you do every day. That that's quite. I did not know that about you, and that's quite fascinating. Um, tell us about uh, your mentors. Who helped shape your career? So, um, I mean, at your advice uh, on, on the PhD thesis it would always be someone who was very important in my case, uh, a professor in Copenhagen called Niels Tigersen. But uh, when I came to Princeton, of course, I got hugely inspired by Ken Rogoff. Uh, also, uh, I didn't communicate much with Ben Bernanke, but uh, a number of the Princeton professors were just the way that they spoke about things and the way that they discussed things. And most importantly, very generally speaking, and now I may offend someone in Europe, but in Europe... <laughs> A lot of the PhD economics programs are fairly theoretical and conceptual and live their own life in models that are somewhat disconnected from the data. Whereas in US PhD programs, the effort is constantly to try to make it relevant. In many cases, you don't succeed, but at least you try constantly to plug it into what is exactly the problem that you see on your Bloomberg screen or your Bloomberg website and how can I try to understand these things better? So those people, including people also uh, at the IMF, uh, Mike Musa and uh, a guy called Fleming Larsen, who have been also very helpful, and of course at uh, Deutsche Bank, uh, Pinky Charter and David Fogels Landau, have really been uh, very in, in, informative for me in terms of uh, how do you succeed and how do you adjust whatever you're doing to be more successful and refine your own skills and constantly learn and get better and better at what you do. Uh, what about investors? Who influ- influenced your thought processes about the markets? Yeah, so the issue is that in my job, I have about 400 client meetings every year. So I sit down and discuss the outlook and also on conference calls with people 
every day, constantly, both in the US, Europe, Asia, Latin America. So I meet a lot of very, very smart people, also people that are not known at all. Uh, some people want to fly under the radar screen. Yes. Uh, so there's a number because they don't they don't have any ambition uh, in terms of getting on, even on the front page of any Wall Street Journal or for that matter on, as a top story in Bloomberg. Uh, they basically want to be very good at what they do and they want to discuss these things that are going on. But uh, there's a number of people uh, who shall remain unnamed uh, in the investment community who are extremely skilled, including at uh, a number of hedge funds. And of course, uh, most importantly here in Manhattan and in, in London, who are really, really good at what they do, but just just have very little ambition in terms of becoming public names. Uh, totally understandable. Uh, let's talk about books. What are your favorite books, be they finance, non-finance, fiction, non-fiction? What are you reading now, and what have you really enjoyed reading in the past? Well, one book that humped me a lot was um, Super Forecasting by Tetlow, who basically uh, told you that you got to update your price and update your forecast constantly, which is also, again, a humbling experience because that is basically telling you that you got to revise constantly as new information comes in, what your forecast is. Sometimes it's tempting for sell-side analysts to just have a forecast and stick with that uh, for a long, long time. Uh, but as investors, and again, helping customers think about what will equities do? Well, I can't just walk around and say, oh, equities will go up and then play golf for 12 months and come back and see <laughs> if they went up or down. I got to have constant evaluation, constant thinking every day. What is the reasons why I'm right? What are the reasons that have come in today? Why I'm wrong? So uh, books around forecasting and books around um, what's happening on how do you refine your forecasting skills, uh, it turns out to be very, very important. In, at least has been very important inspiration for me. Uh, any other books? Anything else you want to mention? Unfortunately, I don't have as much time uh, to read uh, fiction as I really wanted, uh, but um, uh, I would say that that's the main thing that I've been, and, and of course, I spent a lot of time reading uh, newspapers and again, uh, Bloomberg stories and everything that's going on, but uh, it's just not as much as I, I wished. I used to read uh, Kierkegaard, which, as you know, is a very important Danish philosopher, but uh, sure. I haven't done that uh, now for a little while, but uh, sometimes it is important to think really hard about what is it that we do, you and I, and our fine industry and think about what is it exactly the psychology behind what we're doing because it is really not rocket science it really is just stories that come around and as those stories come around the question becomes how important is this story why is this story getting so much weight and as stories come and go sometimes it is important to lean back and think about what is the story and it's almost sounds like fiction but what is the story that we are telling each other at the moment what are the questions that we're asking each other and those are the things that get the most attention huh. that that's fascinating one of the things i i was so impressed with uh, in the Tetlock book is questioning what your assumptions are and questioning what you already know that might apply to figuring out um, some sort of forecast. As you know, and some of your former guests have also said uh, that uh, the most significant skill you can have as a market participant is that you got to be willing to change your mind. Absolutely. And if you just stick to a view, this is so tempting both as a sell-side analyst and also on the buy side. Stick to the view that something is going up. It's got to go up. This got to go up. If it's not happening, you've got to back down and say, this is not happening. i got to revise and i got to change my mind why this is not going up. So what excites you right now? What are you looking at in the world and saying, this is just amazing? Uh, well, one the, other than inflation, which we've spoken about now at great length, um, I do still think that this very broad concept of what is it that we just have been through? If you really take a cup of coffee and sit in your chair, as you always say, and think hard about what is it that we've been through in terms of what central banks have been doing? What is the end game to this? And I know it sounds very fluffy and like hot air, arm wavy stuff to say, what do you mean by end game? But how do we get out of easy money? How can the Fed raise interest rates? What are the implications of these distortions that were made by negative interest rates in the euro area, which should never have happened, that created an enormous amount of distortions? How can we reverse this? And can we just snapping around and say, okay, you know what, we'll just go to positive interest rates and we'll just stop doing QE? Or will there be more profound implications? So I spent a lot of time at a very 30,000 feet level thinking about, well, what are the implications in terms of the exit and how should I think about asset classes? What will stocks do? What will rates do? What will FX do as we get closer to the exit when the ECB will be raising rates next year and the BOJ ultimately also will be raising rates? What will the new economy, meaning what will the economy and the global financial market picture look like on the other side of that exit? That is a really difficult question. And quite fascinating. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. So this is really tough, but um, 
I mean, on uh, anyone, of course, who uh, not only in the financial service industry, but um, anyone who works hard and works in uh, what you and I do, Barry, will of course at some point realize, uh, well, there's only 24 hours a day, so uh, you come to the conclusion: Am I spending too much work on the right things? Should I be working as much as I do? Should I be working harder? Uh, so everything that has to do and what I have done in my career with uh, the right work-life balance, and I have been through uh, a, a number of um, uh, different jobs where I have seen a number of different things at the OECD and the IMF. Uh, things were relatively slow-paced and you had a lot of time to think about things, so there's a different set of problems in terms of uh, how you spend your time and what you do. Uh, for the last uh, 12, 13 years in the job I have today, uh, it's tempting to say the sky is the limit. I can travel around the world and do something 24 hours a day. Uh, but um, uh, I would say the failure would be, and what I also have done myself, is that if you spend too much time on uh, your job and uh, too little time on other things, which can be, and here I'm not only talking about family and and spouse and children uh, and likewise, but also on friends and sports and doing things that are fun. It's very important and one very important lesson uh, that uh, has taken me some time to learn is that you got to have a balanced life. Uh, it's not only a balanced diet, but also a balanced life in terms of uh, what do I think is fun? Because I love talking about inflation, unemployment and markets, but I can't <laughs> do that like you. Uh, and we have these conversations often, you and I, but we can't do that like all day long. you got to do other things. And sometimes... Uh, you also gotta go and I play soccer once a week on uh, Brooklyn Bridge PFI. That, I love that. That was my next question. So, what do you do for fun? I try to uh, have fun with uh, some good friends and uh, go and do something else, just to uh, freshen your mind. You're, and you're playing full contact soccer once yeah, a week. So, yeah. So it, it is. We're completely hopeless, uh, but it is fun, <laughs> and we we play to win. I should say that. <laughs> But um, but it is to get some exercise, to hang out with some good friends and get to do something else uh, that I think is a lot of fun other than just... Otherwise, uh, I mean, I'm not kidding. I get emails 24-7. I wake up in the morning. I respond to emails from people in Asia and Europe who want to discuss things. Sometimes I just respond with a sentence or two. But uh, that constant flow, you can look at your phone literally 24-7. And that's just no end to um, uh, to how many people want to talk about whether inflation is going up, whether the Fed will hike rates, or whether the dollar is going down. So if a recent college grad or a millennial came up to you and said, I'm thinking about pursuing a career in economics, what sort of advice might you give them? I would say, uh, you, which would be general career advice, not only for economics, you've got to get good at something that you are just really good at. Uh, once you're really good, like you, at investing, once you're really good at whatever, if it's playing soccer, once you're really good at a certain type of economics, then you just got to figure out how can I translate this skill into something that I both find is interesting, but also someone else might find valuable. I could sit in my chair and close my door and say, oh, I'm so smart, you can ask me any question, but if I didn't, get out on the dance floor myself and try to reach out to people and talk about things and discuss things and uh, have an approach of saying, let me be open-minded to what it is that I'm good at and how I can maneuver at in a changing world, uh, then uh, I, I wouldn't be doing well. Uh, so the answer to your question is, as, as again difficult as it is to respond directly to that kind of discussion, is still find out what you're really good at and do that really, really well and then find out who can use this skill, how can I get this skill translated into something that I think is fun for the rest of my life and also that others might be willing to even pay me a salary for. And then lastly, what is it that you know about the world of markets, economics, investing today that you wish you knew 20 plus years or so ago when you first started your career? I think that... Uh, on the financial crisis, I wish I had understood better in 2008 and nine the significant importance of what the central banks were doing. In other words, asset prices for the last, uh, since 2009, for the last nine years, in particular, including also equities, but rates in particular, have been driven very, very importantly by central bank action, which is why this issue of the exit becomes so important. So I wish that I had spent less time if you will, on my old school economics textbooks and has spent more time reading literally Rokoff's books. This time is different because this time is not different. This was exactly the same thing. What was different was that the sheer size of easing, the sheer size of money printing that central banks were willing to throw at the system just happened to be 
absolutely by far the most important driver of stock prices, interest rates, and exchange rates for a very, very long period. And that's what we're exiting now. And that's why that issue of the power of what central banks did uh, turned out to be a much more significant driver of markets. And I wish I had appreciated that earlier. Huh, quite, quite fascinating. We have been speaking with Torsten Slock. He is the chief international economist at Deutsche Bank Securities. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes or Overcast or Bloomberg.com, and you could see any of the other 200 or so such interviews that we've conducted over the past four years. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps to put together this podcast each week. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Taylor Riggs is my uh, Booker producer. Uh, Medina Parwana is our producer engineer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.